What creates a serial killer capable of unspeakable brutality? Pathological, The Murderous Rage of Dr. Anthony Garcia by Henry Cords takes readers through a harrowing journey of murder and the investigation that finally brought justice to a community of families. Thanks for joining Imagine Publicity on Air, which is partner-sponsored by Wild Blue Press and Imagine Publicity. This podcast covers a variety of topics for you who are interested in current events, history, and books. I especially enjoy bringing attention to authors and books that you may not have heard of yet. Um, Sometimes they're only popular regionally and need a little bump that I can provide through uh, exposing them to a national listening audience. I'm the host, Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. We're a boutique social media management company that works with individuals, companies, or nonprofits, anyone looking for assistance with their social media presence. Not only do I offer full services, but also training to those who prefer to personally handle their own accounts. I appreciate your feedback and reviews on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Please keep the suggestions for future episodes coming. Shoot me an email at Delilah at ImaginePublicity.com or through my website contact form at ImaginePublicity.com. My guest today is author Henry Cords, a reporter for the Omaha World Herald, whose book, Pathological, The Murderous Rage of Dr. Anthony Garcia, recounts a series of murders five years apart in Omaha, Nebraska, and the ensuing investigation, capture, and trial of Dr. Anthony Garcia. Welcome, Henry. Yeah, hey, Delilah. Good to talk to you. Good to have you on. Listen, can you, um, let's start out with maybe telling listeners a little bit about your personal background. Um, I, I've said you're a reporter, um, but let's go into that a little bit first. Right. Yeah, I am a reporter. I've been a reporter at the Omaha World Herald for more than 30 years. Uh, I do a variety of topics. I'm a general assignment reporter. It's kind of a great um, business to be in because I I write about all kinds of different things, and uh, public policy has been one of them. But uh, a lot of times when when big events happen in Omaha, uh, I tend to get involved as well. I haven't been a police reporter at the paper since you know, my rookie days, but but uh, often on big crime cases, I get pulled in, and that's what happened on on this particular one, uh, which really became one of the most sensational sensational crimes we've seen in Omaha and, and, and possibly even in Nebraska since the, the days of Charles Starkweather back in the late 1950s. Yeah, that was my next question. How did you get involved in this case? Right. Well, the. The, the, this case involves, uh, for people unfamiliar with the, the story of, of Dr. Garcia, w- what we had were, were two sets of just brutal murder, murders that happened in Omaha uh, five years apart. One was in uh, 2008. In that case, you know, detectives walk into a house and, and, and find, you know, the bodies of two people, one of them an 11-year-old boy and the other a, a, a house cleaner. Uh, the home of a prominent doctor, a couple of doctors actually, in in Omaha, one of Omaha's nicest older neighborhoods. They'd been stabbed to death. Both of them still had the knives impaled in their necks um, that had been taken right from the kitchen. The the father had come home and and, and to his horror found the the bodies this way. And um, the the detectives had worked on this case. they pursued a lot of different angles. There had been no really obvious suspects to anyone, and uh, they because of the fact there were two victims, including a young boy, they pursued a lot of different angles. They pursued angles related to the parents and their work at, at Creighton University's Medical Center in Omaha. But in the end, the investigation just didn't get anywhere. And, um, well, five years later... I'm sorry to interrupt, but before we get too far ahead of of ourselves, <laughs> let's right. do this first. Let's kind of. I would like to introduce the victims of and the, and their families. Right. Um, I really right. feel like they their story can't be told because they no longer have a voice to tell their story. So if we can sort of give a background on who right. these families are. Right. Right. Yeah, we can deal more in more detail on the first murders because. 
they were, and again, that gets to why I was brought in the case, just a sensational set of murders in this neighborhood. I actually live in the neighborhood where, where they occurred. In fact, Warren Buffett also uh, lives, you know, probably Omaha's most fav- famous citizen also lives in, in this neighborhood. And um, and that was one of the best things about the book was to be able to go into detail on the victims in this case. And well, you had 11-year-old Tommy Hunter, who was, you know, really just kind of a, a young prodigy, very intelligent young kid, uh, very worldly. He was the youngest of four Hunter children, all boys, and he was much younger than his much older siblings. So he was someone who was very comfortable in the adult world. I mean, he was very mature ahead of his years, um, very smart. Uh, everyone could see him, you know, uh, going possibly going into science or medicine. He had a great interest in those subjects. But he's also just an 11-year-old kid. He loved computer games. He loved to hang out with his friends. He loved to play basketball. They loved to roam the, their very quiet neighborhood, um, uh, kind of traveled in pack, packs with his uh, his friends, and um, uh, uh, but was a kid that was definitely going places. And... and uh, he was home alone, as he typically was when he came home from school. In fact, the, the last images we have of Tommy are a video of him getting off of his bus right in front of his home on that day in March 2008. And uh, he, he didn't come home to an empty home like he usually did on, on this day because of the fact that it was cleaning day at the Hunter house and Shirley Sherman was there. Now, Shirley was in her uh, mid-50s, and she... Uh, um, Shirley had had kind of a, a hard life. Um, she uh, 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 had grown up as in a kind of working class neighborhood, working class home, um, had always been relied on to help care for her younger siblings. She was the, 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 the oldest um, in her family. And uh, there wasn't. She was pretty, fairly intelligent, but there really wasn't much question. You know, this is the late '60s when she's graduating from high school. She was going to go right to work, and that's what she did. She was always her family's caretaker. She herself became a single parent when she divorced, and had, so she raised two children on her own. Um, generally, had a pretty hard life, but but was also very salt to the earth, very hardworking. Um, and, and she had turned to house cleaning as a way to, um, so that she could set her own schedule and, and, and be around her children when she needed to be. And, um, and uh, she had developed a kind of a large clientele among doctors at Creighton University. That's how the Hunter family had come to hire her. And, uh, and, and she, she, was, she was a little, uh, she could be rough and tough, and, um, uh, but was all, also had a very good heart and um uh and was very well regarded by by the hunters and um and so uh she and Tommy both died together there in the house when the the only thing that was known was that several people saw a car uh, uh that went by the house shortly after Tommy got home from school and it looked like it was, there was a olive skin man in the car the car appeared to be from out of state they nobody knew the plate but it, it was clearly not a Nebraska plate and it kind of went by the house as if it was scouting out an address, uh, went around the corner, parked. Um, this um, man was seen walking up the street, proceeded to the front door of the, the Hunter house, um, and then that was the last he was seen, uh, other than later he was seen leaving, uh, leaving the neighborhood, getting back in his car, and driving away. Um, and, uh, so that was pretty much all that was known, uh, at, at the time, uh, other than the, you know, the fact that the, these two victims were just very brutally murdered, murdered right there in the home. And the second set of victims, this was, this second murder happened five years after the first murder, which right. in serial, in serial killer world is, is a little Unusual, don't you think? Usually, don't serial killers hit a little bit quicker than that? But yeah, that, tell us right. But, but tell I'll tell us you about, about the, the second. Yes, the, go ahead. The second set of murders. You then go to Mother's Day in 2013. Um, Dr. Roger Brumbach um, and his wife are at home. Dr. Brumbach 
uh, is also uh, also works for Creighton University, works in the same department as Bill Hunter, the father of the victim in the first murders. And they're going through a, a normal Mother's Day. They have conversations with their two children via FaceTime. Uh, and um, they're going about their day. The uh, Dr. Brumbeck has recently retired from Creighton. Uh, and he and his wife, who had been a community volunteer uh, uh, and ha- had been an attorney and, and a, 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 uh, an established person in her own right, and um, until they had moved to Omaha, and she had decided to just kind of uh, settle, settle in and, and kind of take on more of a volunteer role. And now they are both ready to go into retirement. They were, um, they were in the process of preparing their home, which is in a nice suburb of Omaha, preparing it for sale, um, and they were going to be moving to West Virginia. Roger was going to – he wasn't really ready to retire. retire. He was still going to take a job with a medical college in, in West West Virginia, but he was he was ready to kind of start winding things down, and uh, they were very much looking forward to this. Um, uh, the Brumbachs had three children. Like I said, they communicated with at least two of them on Mother's Day that day, and uh, – and uh, after that, they were um, they they were went back to the business of preparing for this move, which was fairly imminent. And all of a sudden, they had a visitor at their door. Um, Roger was shot right at the front door uh, several times. Um, uh, the intruder then got in, uh, engaged in a struggle with Mary Brumback. Um, uh, we know this because of the evidence that was left behind. The and, and the initial struggle struggle with Roger, in which Roger was shot um, at very close range, uh, the gun clip had fallen out of the gun, um, and so it had become inoperable. The assailant had then hit Mary in the head with the gun so hard it broke the gun, um, and and the, that apparently had kind of um, uh, kind of knocked. Marriott to some degree because the assailant uh, then turned to very familiar ways to to finish these killings. He he went into the kitchen, he found kitchen knives, um, stabbed Mary. Well, he first Mary was was still conscious enough that she engaged in a pretty bitter struggle with him, trying to fend off this man with the knife. Um, uh, suffered some horrible wounds and, and defensive wounds in the process of that. Eventually, he did subdue her, killed her with very uh, 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 cuts to the neck, very similar to the right side of the neck, the same way the uh, previous victims had been killed. And then he returned to Roger's body. Roger, by that time, was probably already dead. He was. He was. Uh, this was pretty evident by the fact that he put up no struggle when uh, the assailant returned to Roger. Uh, but he again left what became his signature knife wound uh, wounds in the right side of Roger's neck. In fact, in all. For victims, it would later be shown that uh, the carotid artery um, uh, um, had been severed, which was um, uh, which would have really uh, killed them very quickly uh, in those cases. And so, um, and 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 so, this is where you kind of turn to the story of the de- the detectives in in this case. And there's one detective in in particular who is who is really central to the narrative of pathological. There's an Omaha detective named Derek Moyce at the time of the 2008 murders. He'd only been in homicide a couple of years, but he had shown himself to be very promising um, and uh, was already very highly regarded. Uh, but in, in that case, he just happened to be the detective on duty when, when the Hunter murders had occurred, and he was the first detective to walk through the front door and, and, and had played a, a fairly big role in, in that initial investigation. Well, who's the first detective who just happens to be on duty and, and to walk through the door um, in, in the case of the Brumbach killings? It's Derek Moyce. Um, uh, he walks in the door with, a, with another longtime partner, um, Detective Warner, and um, they both all of a sudden start seeing things that look very familiar to them. A very nice home, two victims, both of them with knife wounds in their necks, taken right from the home and uh so they're already getting set kind of a some creepy feelings about these killings 
and then uh, shortly after they finish their first case of the home, uh, the the identity comes from downtown of who the victims were, and, and the fact that Roger Brumbach was associated with Bill Hunter at Creighton University, uh, and then it became that's when it first became obvious to everyone that they were dealing with a serial killer here who was targeting Creighton University pathologists. I found that to be probably the most fascinating part of the book is how these detectives who who really worked very, very hard over the five years to solve the first murder and then the second one happens and how they, after that they were able to put all the pieces of the puzzle together and come up with a suspect. Maybe you can go into a little bit of the investigation that, that helped them capture Garcia. Yeah, right. That that the you know the the first investigation was hindered by a lot of things, including some mistakes that we go into later. But um, but it was also hindered by the fact that, like I said, there was no obvious victim uh, intended target. Was it the the housekeeper who had some? Uh, you know, she came from a more rough and tumble background, so there were some folks in her. Uh, family's background. Who there were some uh, there were some drug involvement. There were um, there were some things that uh, that made folks suspicious. And then you had the boy. Was he a target for some reason? Was it the parents? Well, now we know after the second set of murders, there is highly likely uh, the 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 killer is somehow associated with the Creighton Pathology Department. They didn't narrow the focus to that, but they. Um, uh, but they, but it was very clear that that was needed to be a focus. So a task force was was formed, and and obviously the Creighton pathology angle was one of the uh, the primary angles uh, that they were going to pursue. There actually had been a, a Creighton doctor who had been an initial suspect in the case, um, who had been vetted pretty heavily in previous years, and he was still considered probably the prime suspect. Um, uh, at this time, he was a Russian doctor who had had some conflicts with with the Creighton University Pathology Department. Um, now, Dr. Hunter had never suspected him, but Roger Brumbach, ironically, before he was killed, uh, when the Hunter investigation was undergoing, had had been one of the pe- people who had helped fing- finger this Russian doctor as a potential suspect. So he was back on the radar. But they didn't limit just to him. They they had to look at, they decided that, you know, this time we need to take a hard look at everybody at Creighton. So they pulled all of the personnel records from the, the Creighton Pathology Department, everyone who was working there and had worked in there uh, uh, since the time that, uh, of 2000, so in the previous, like, almost 13 years. They pulled all of those records. They put put them all into bind. Each each individual employee was in a binder. There were dozens of them, and um, uh, and those binders were parceled out among detectives. Well, Derek Morris he had some other initial charges in the investigation. He uh, that took his time in the in the first week, including doing the crime scene, um, and. Um, so, uh, but when he finished that work and he had an, looked at another avenue that didn't go anywhere, he went to his sergeant and he said, "Hey, you know, I'm this is a dead end. I need I need something else." And and his sergeant said, "Well, you know, some of these guys are going through these crate and personnel records. Why don't I get you one of those binders?" So uh, he he goes and he he returns to Derek Moise's desk um, uh, minutes later. With one of those binders, uh, the name and the name on the spine of it is Dr. Anthony J. Garcia, and it was just another amazing example of how Derek Boyce uh, just constantly is the man on the spot at every critical juncture in this investigation. You know, uh, out of the dozens of binders of Creighton employees that um, that they were investigating at the time, he just happens to be handed what proves to be uh, the right one, um, and and uh, but just getting the the this binder in his hand, you know, obviously, um, it was just a name on a binder at that point, and uh, but and so Derek Moist begins to go through it, very quickly sees that that Anthony Garcia had had conflicts um, at Creighton. In fact, he'd been fired from Creighton less than a year into what was supposed to be a four-year uh, residency in pathology at Creighton. 
and uh, he quickly sees that, well, and he sees the firing letter and the two names at the bottom of the letter, uh, Roger Brumbach and uh, Bill Hunter. And uh, uh, now, now the firing had clear, happened clear back in 2001, you know, so it had been seven years by the time of the Hunter murders, uh, by the time, uh, uh, you know, he had, was long gone from Creighton, by the time even the first set of murders happened, which is one of the reasons why he, he never became a prime suspect in, in the uh, first set of murders, even though he had been fired. But so now, now, but now that we know that there are two set of Creighton murders and, and that Garcia has ties to potentially both of them, he, you know, Derek Moyce is becoming very interested in, in this person. And then the next day he gets vehicle uh, records for this individual and his heart kind of stops when he sees the, the vehicle that Garcia had been driving back in 2008 at the time of the first murders. He was driving a Honda CRV, which is the exact same vehicle. Silver Honda CRV was the exact same vehicle that had been seen outside the Hunter home in 2008. So all of a sudden he's like, holy, you know what? It's the, this could very well be our guy. And so he requests three, um, two other detectives to work closely with him. And then they proceed to put Dr. Garcia under very much a microscope because now certainly they had motive in this case, but there was still a long way they had to go to prove that he was the, he was the killer. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about Dr. Garcia. Let's talk about his background and maybe what, set of circumstances brought him from where he started in medical school and gone through everything he did to the point where he became a serial killer. Right. It's, it's a very interesting path and, and and we don't even learn all the elements of it until really near the end because we don't really learn his full life story until he actually goes to trial. But in some ways it's a very sad story. I mean, he was, uh, he, he grew up in a very middle-class family. His mom was a nurse. Um, he in Southern California. He um, he was not a super student, very average in every way. But um, his parents very much wanted him to go into medicine. It's not something he ever even wanted to do. He he would later say that math was his favorite subject. But they they really wanted to have a doctor in the family. And he he was pushed into this, even though by all rights he was not doctor material. He, um, in fact, he uh, records would later show he entered medical school reading at a fifth grade level. I mean, medical school involves all kinds of technical reading, and, and in fact, he complained as he sought special accommodations from the University of Utah, where he was where he was in medical school that, you know, I spend all my time reading and rereading everything. I don't even have time to take care of myself. Um, and But somehow, including through special education uh, accommodations he was giving, he got through medical school. Uh, but he he then proceeded to flush out of, you know, getting a, a you know, you get through medical school, you're, you're a doctor, you have your medical degree. But really to be successful in the business, you have to get a specialty. And that involves... Uh, going into residency training in a in, in in a medical specialty, and and Dr. Garcia over the next five or so years proceeded to wash out of four different residencies. Um, he washed out of one before he even went to Creighton, which Creighton never was aware of because he failed to disclose the fact he'd washed out of this New York residency. He went to Creighton. We know he got fired there. Um, he went uh, even after Creighton. Uh, even after Dr. Hunter fired him, Dr. Hunter helped him land on his feet at another residency in Illinois. It was one reason why Dr. Hunter never really suspected Garcia, because um, even though, yes, he had fired Garcia many, many years earlier, he had also helped him land at another residency. And But he washed out of that one, too. And by the time he washed out of his third residency, it was pretty clear that Garcia, besides not being Dr. Material was also um, having some real uh, mental health issues, uh, going through major depression, um, uh, was medicating himself, self-medicating in some cases, 
was given electroshock therapy, which is really something that um, uh, you know health professionals only resort to for depression that even even medication is not able to help treat. You know, it's almost seen as a last resort. So it, it's pretty clear here he had some pretty serious mental illness, and that ended up uh, he ended up landing back home in California uh, with his parents. Thought about doing other things, thought about repairing cars, which was probably more the line of work he should have been in in the first place. Um, and um, But somehow he landed another residency uh, at Louisiana State University. Um, this became his fourth one. This one was in psychiatry, perhaps uh, an interest he had developed because of his own struggles with mental illness. But he, he got this residency uh, somehow, um, and he started into it. But this is where kind of the Creighton and revenge starts to become the motive. Um, so in 2007 is when he started that residency. Remember the Hunter murders were in 2008. Well, in early 2008, uh, he was denied a medical license in the state of Louisiana uh, because they learned that he had been fired from Creighton, which was something he had not disclosed uh, on his uh licensing uh, materials in Louisiana. They informed LSU Medical School of this. The licensing authority did. LSU fired him and uh, uh, f- for his failure to disclose his Creighton firing. And that, that, fi- that firing at LSU, we later would find, occurred two weeks before the first set of murders. So we now know all of a sudden why he was motivated to kill. It was because uh, it, he 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 was fired from this LSU residency, and it directly related to his firing from Creighton. So that's when those murders occurred. Uh, after those murders, he was actually able to kind of return to Illinois and get a series of medical jobs. They weren't anything great. It was like doing health checkups um, and um, enough to make a living. Uh, he moved to Terre Haute, was doing some doctoring work at a prison, but his life just kind of continued this downward spiral. He'd been drinking for years, drank all the time, was pretty much constantly drunk, um, um, washed out of his uh, jobs uh, in uh, Indiana at, at the prison in 2013, and that was right around the time he was then motivated to go kill Roger Brumbach. And um, uh, again, as his failures uh, and that he, he tended to trace to his firing from Creighton uh, continued to haunt him. By then, his, his, his mental uh, problems had, had gone far beyond depression. He was obviously very vengeful um, and, uh, uh, what, uh, and you know, really set out to target um, uh, Brumbach. And in fact, as we later learn, and this is something that Derek Moyes, through his investigation, uh, learns about, um, uh, they he wasn't uh, Brumbach wasn't even the primary target. There was another doctor from Omaha that he in, came to kill that day. Tried to break into her home. She wasn't home, uh, and that's when he turned his attention uh, instead to Roger Brumbach. Uh, but that all gets to things that Derek Moyes and his team of detectives, uh, once he's identified Garcia as a as a great suspect, uh, he and his team sit down, and, and much of the book uh, centers on the work that they did to try to prove that Garcia was the killer. Right, and can you kind of go through briefly the how they captured him? Finally, he was on his way to do some more. Uh, nefarious deeds, as I recall. Right, right. He, it, it, by all indications, he indeed was. Um, you know, they, like I said, we had they had motive through the wazoo with with Garcia. You know, for for these killings, but they did, but they needed to show that he had potentially been in Omaha during either the 2013 or 2008 killings, and um, and so that te- came to be one of the the key things, and and. What they did was, you know, there are a couple of ways that detectives today can try to show where somebody was at any given time and place, and they're not, not anything too sophisticated. One is cell phones, and the other is credit card records, and that's what they largely turned to. And they ended up hitting gold in, in both areas. Um, when it came to Garcia's cell phone, 
they uh, and this was this was a key point of the investigation. This is where they finally realized, okay, we've got him now. This is definitely our guy. Uh, they looked for his cell phone records on the day of the of the the killings in the Brumbach case, and there is a single phone call in Garcia's cell phone records that day, and and it has. There are a bunch of numbers associated with those, and and the the guy who kind of takes the the center stage in this part of the the story is Nick Herford. He is the digital forensics guy for the Omaha Police Department, and um and um, one of Moise's partners in the uh, in in looking at Garcia, and he knows those numbers are the the latitude and longitude for a cell phone tower, um and so he inputs them in the computer, boom they uh you know and Hit, hit send and and they see that the cell phone tower that, that this call had pinged off of on Mother's Day was just an hour east of Omaha. Uh, so now they know, yep, he this is our guy, and he was there on the the day of of the Brumbach killings. Then they they uh, eventually they get even more detailed information through the cell phone, uh, uh, or rather through the credit card records. They show that uh, he had made credit card transactions in Omaha. And and we later learned through digital forensics work on Garcia's phone that Nick Herford does after the arrest that um, that uh, they can show that uh, Garcia actually went to a restaurant in Omaha after he failed to break in uh, at, to Butra's house. He sits down with his food. He pulls out his cell phone, and he Googles uh, Roger Brumbach's address right there on his phone and um and um and he uh uh looks up his address and that that uh that search happens just before the Brumbach killings and um so uh uh that's that's generally how they that was really the 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 main proof they had that this was their guy and so that they 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 compile a bunch of other evidence they finally decide uh, by this time, we're weeks into the investigation that they're going to go make the arrest. They, the task force heads to Terre Haute to get him, and they find that he is isn't there. Um, they they were tweaking his phone, and they find that he uh, they were pinging his phone, I should say, and they were getting the location of the phone every half hour. And they see that right as the time they're swooping in to arrest him. He's on the move. He's he's left his home in Terre Haute. He's heading south through Illinois, um, and they suspect he's. In fact, there's much evidence later that he was headed to LSU with plans to kill more people that he blamed for his failures. Um, uh, the, there's there's some snafus that happen as they they're tracking him and trying to catch him. Two FBI agents that were part of the task force eventually do locate him. They trail him, um, and, and 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 when it looks like he's about ready to leave the state of Illinois, they don't want him to cross state lines, um, and they swoop in and arrest him. And uh, uh, and uh, that's uh, the, that's kind of the end. That's basically Garcia's last day as a free man. And um, there's still much more investigative work that needs to be done. Um, uh, even after he's arrested, though, I mean, for one, yes, they had all kinds of evidence that um, linking him to the uh, Brumbach murders. You know, they could show he was in Omaha. They could. Um, uh, the, they didn't have that evidence when it came to the Hunter cases. In fact, all they had in the Hunter case really were the similarity of the Hunter murders to the um, Brumbach murders, and the fact that he drove a car that was similar to that scene outside of the Hunter home. But uh, but the people who saw the assailant back in 2018, they weren't able to pick Garcia out of a lineup. And so they really didn't have a, a, that very strong case against him in the in the Hunter murders. But uh, that but that's where uh, another uh, potential witness they found as they were investigating in the wake of Garcia's murder. They found a stripper and Terre Haute, who had a very interesting story to tell, and she ends up becoming really kind of the prime witness um, when Garcia, in 2016, finally goes to trial on these four sets of murders. 
And it's interesting how important the digital forensics was in finding him and capturing him. And, and what people don't understand is, is just because you've deleted something from your phone or your computer doesn't right. mean that they can't be found. <laughs> right, right. I, if, uh, one, one of my, I didn't know anything about digital forensics when I began work on this book, but all I can say, if you're a criminal and you carry a cell phone, you're an idiot. Uh, because it's amazing how much stuff they were able to trace to him, show exactly where he was at times, um, uh, to show what he was searching. Even though he deleted the search history, that didn't stop Nick Herford. He had other ways to, to, to figure out what he was searching for. There are other places on the phone in addition to search history where searches end up stored. Nick Herford knew all that stuff, and and he was able to find it. And uh, um, so that the the digital forensics part of the book is, is frankly very very fascinating. It, it truly. I should watch out for people who don't have a cell phone. <laughs> they must be up to something, right? Well, right. You know what? What do you think? It, I mean, obviously, he Garcia had a lot of serious mental health issues um do you feel in in you know with your investigating everything to write this book if if there was some way that someone stepped in his path and got him the help that was needed and but of course you know going through what he did I don't I don't know with the electric shock and everything else that he did I don't know that that would have helped either what's your opinion on that I don't know, but I generally, Gar, I I I generally think that there could have been something done. Part of the problem is Garcia was very much a loner, did not have very many people in his life, did not have close friends. So there were, and he was living far away from his family in California. There just wasn't anybody to be that person to help guide him and to help uh, to help him get the the help he needed. I think you raise a good point on that. And um, uh, uh, it's something I probably could have explored more in the book, but um, uh, but uh, but it but I do think that there probably um, could have been ways to do that. And, and if he had not continued to try to make medicine his career, if he had if if when he returned to California in 2003 and he had stayed there, and become a car mechanic, and forgotten this whole idea of ever becoming a doctor. Uh, I think uh, I think he would have been better off, and I think there are four people that would 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 still be alive today if, if that weren't been the case. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate path that he took. Um, so right. let, let's let's go into the trial portion of of this journey. Um, tell us a little bit about the trial, the prosecutors, the defense attorneys, um, the conflicts. Because that was quite right. interesting as well. Right. I mean, this story really has it all. I mean, it has an interesting murders. It has a very interesting lead detective. I mean, we didn't talk about Derek, but Derek isn't your typical, you know, hard-nosed cop guy. He's he's a uh, he's a Buddhist. He's um, uh, uh, he uh, he's got tattoos going down both of his arms, and and uh, um, and and then you have. Uh, the the victims are interesting in this case. The investigation becomes interesting, and then even the trial becomes very very interesting. And it's because partly and some of the the players who were involved, and as well as the nature of the crime. I mean, as far as the crime itself, I mean, this was probably the most sensational trial in Nebraska since Starkweather, um, and um, very much anticipated, a lot of attention, and. Um, uh, and Garcia was represented by a very interesting legal team uh, from Chicago, and they they were they were basically take no prisoners. Uh, uh, they were a take no prisoners uh, team. They were um, they took a kind of a scorched earth policy. They didn't care what anybody in Nebraska felt about them, and they they were um, they they were constantly raising commotion and and making loud objections and and um uh, uh it was uh, it, at times they turned the trial into into kind of a circus um uh and the trial also became very interesting because of the fact that um the key witness in this case 
as I mentioned earlier, there were, you know, they had tons of evidence linking him to the uh, Brumbach murders, very few little to the Hunter case. But they did, detectives, while they were working in Terre Haute, after the wake of Garcia's arrest, did find a key witness. Um, she was a um, stripper, essentially, who worked at a strip club. And Garcia, being the lonely guy that he was, tended to spend a lot of time at strip clubs, spent a lot of money at strip clubs, and um, and kind of was well-known there. Um, and Cecilia was um, um, was his favorite. And uh, he kind of took a liking to her. She kind of played him, you know, just like any other customer. She was just in this for the money, uh, but she would try to kind of hint at him. She was interested in him just so she, she could keep him coming back. Um, and, and he was making overtures to her. She finally decided, hey, I need to push this guy away, um, uh, let somebody else take over. Um, so she, uh, she, outside the strip club, when they're taking a smoke break one day, she says, um, she says to him, you know, hey, you know, you're a doctor. Uh, I'm a bad girl, um, you know, uh, I, and I like bad boys. So, you know, we're really not meant for each other. And, and, um, and, and that's when Garcia said to her, well, I'm a bad guy too. In fact, I've killed people. And he essentially at that moment confessed to the murders of uh, Tommy Hunter and Shirley Sherman. And he said, I, I killed a young boy and an old woman. And um, uh, she didn't really believe him. Um, but then uh, at the time, and uh, she was she really challenged him on that, and just kind of took it off as a as a joke in his effort to try to keep her in his life. But um, uh, but in the end, after Garcia's arrested, you know, the detectives come find her, and she realizes that wow, this really did happen. And um, so she becomes the star witness at trial, and and everybody knows that. Everybody knows that she is the most, you know, there's a, essentially a confession there. So she becomes the most important witness linking him to the Hunter killings, and and her testimony in the stand becomes very dramatic. Um, and I won't spoil it all, but it it, uh, it it really becomes the the central point of the trial, and and ends up becoming a very key part of uh, of his conviction. Right, and I, I again, I thought that portion of the book was was very eye opening as well. How he ended up with the defense team that he did was actually kind of surprising to me. So right. now that we're we're running down to the to the back end of the show, um, I'd like to to give listeners an idea of where. Where is everyone now? I think we know, you know, Garcia was convicted, um, but where where are these families now, and how are they doing? And right, where is Garcia right. being housed? Right, Garcia is in the Nebraska State Penitentiary. He was sentenced to life, or, or not to life. He was sentenced to death, but um, uh, so he'll be there for for a long time. Executions don't tend to happen very quickly in in Nebraska. We just had one. Uh, uh, just a, uh, not long ago, that uh, uh, was a case that dated back to the 1970s. So um, he will be in prison for a long time. I think the chances are, given his his declining health, that he could he could very well die in prison before he's ever uh, ever faces execution. His his it's very hard to tell what his current mental state is. By the time he showed up for his sentencing, which didn't occur until. Uh, here very recently in 2018, he was almost in a catatonic state. I mean, he was he was his slumped over in a wheelchair during the entire sentencing. It appeared to show no interest in the proceedings and what was going on. Very hard to tell was it an act, was it, um, or or was he truly you know that out of it? In fact, the the last thing we know is that when he went to prison and they took his official prison mugshot. I mean, there's a hand that's holding supporting his head and holding it up to face the camera because he he was again as he went to the prison slumped over in this wheelchair now uh it's really we we don't really know whether whether it's all just an act i mean if 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 he's really as bad as he 
appeared to be at trial and in that picture. I mean, they have to be feeding him intravenously. And unfortunately, because of privacy laws in Nebraska, we can't really know what what's going on with him in prison. But he but he's there, and he he'll probably be there for the rest of his life. Um, as far as the hunters, you know, they Bill Hunter's now retired from Creighton very recently, um, and uh, uh, they still live in the same home. Uh, that they they where their son uh, was killed more than a decade ago, and you know a lot of people are surprised by that, but um, their feeling is, um, you know, they've taken a very thoughtful approach to this. Yeah, this is the the home where our son was brutally murdered, but this was also the home where for decades we raised our family, and we have a lot of great memories in in this home, and uh, uh, that's why they they never left. Um, um, uh, Shirley's family. Um, uh, you know, they, they, they're very bitter about what happened. Um, they, they were always kept a constant vigil at, at trial. The Brumbeck family, they've always been very private. We've never, never heard a lot from, from them. Uh, they, they tended to, other than when they were called to testify, they, they, um, they stayed away from the trial. Uh, the, the detectives, there are four really main detectives who, who kind of, uh, are at the center point of the story ironically now um not one of them is still in the um uh in the homicide uh unit at uh at opd nick herford has become a you know digital forensics has just exploded he was the only he was a part-time digital forensics um guy in omaha in 2013 and and their only one now he is he is the head of a six-person digital forensics unit and um and because that area you know with the explosion of of smartphone use i mean that it it just comes up in all kinds of 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 criminal cases now and and he's become very very big into that um derek moise um the the book talks a lot about how what a uh it goes a lot into his personal life and and what a as a father and of young boys what what a how much the the burden of being a homicide detective weighed on his family life, and it's something he constantly struggled with. He had left homicide once earlier and actually came back to it just because he just loved the work so much. And he he finally decided that it was too much of a um, a daily strain. He's now uh, in the in the cold case unit, and so he's now working all the time on cases just like the one that um that that he uh, they eventually solved in this in this case because the Garcia case had certainly become uh, a cold case at the uh, uh, at the time that uh, it was solved um and um the other the other detectives have also t- taken uh, new new assignments so it is interesting how everyone in, in this this case has kind of moved on but but I'll tell you it's a case that that uh, that they say will always stick with them, and, and, and anybody who reads the Garcia story, uh, I can guarantee you, it is one that does stick with you. It really does, and, and like you said earlier, it has all the elements that um, that have created a very fascinating book. And speaking of book, tell listeners where can they get a copy. Oh yeah, it's it's available all over. It's 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 out in all formats. You can get the audiobook, you can get get it, uh, the Kindle version, and uh, and uh, or you can get the printed book. And uh, they're uh, uh, they they may depending on where you live, it might be in your local bookstore, but they're certainly all available uh, on Amazon. Uh, and you, you can just uh, search uh, for the term pathological on, on 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 Amazon, and you should find all find them in all formats there. Wonderful, and also through the Wild Blue Press website as well, oh, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Wild Blue does sell the book directly, and and, and uh, absolutely, and and the World Herald uh, uh, sell for people here in uh, uh, in in Nebraska. We, we we sell it locally here as well. Well, you know, this is one of those regional cases and regional books that I I really hope will take off across the country for you for several reasons. I think it was a case that, that should be studied even even closer, um, maybe by other law enforcement agencies who are working similar cases. And how does this happen? You know, it, it, that's right. what I kept thinking all the way through the book. How does this happen? Um, right. That a, right. A, a medical doctor, you know, someone that we, we put our trust into and our, our children's lives in their hands and so forth. How can this happen? And I think right. it was 
very well explained in your book. Right. Thank you. Yeah, it was my first foray into true crime, too. I'd done a couple other books before, but this was the first one. But we certainly picked a a fascinating uh, case to dive into in that way. Absolutely. And do you have a website, Henry? Do Where I can people find you? Um, well, probably the, I don't have a personal website because I may, I, my, my main work is still my day-to-day work as a reporter. I have a com- story on my uh, computer screen right now that I'm working on for uh, uh, this weekend's paper. So, but, um, but, but you can learn more about me. I, I do have an uh, author's page on Amazon that ta- also talks about the other two books that I've done. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking time this morning to come on air with me. Um, Thank you to Wild Blue Press, our partners in true crime, um, who have done a fantastic job of pulling a lot of genres together in their company. And they're doing great things, and I love working with them. So do you have anything else that you would like to let listeners know before we go off air? Uh, no, no. Uh, I just enjoyed okay. the conversation, and I uh, hope people go, yeah. go, out, go out and get the book. I do, too. Well, thanks again, and stay safe out there, and most important, be kind to each other. Mm-hmm.